Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. These are coming from the TDIHC vault, so you'll also hear two hosts. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and it's September 9th. The Attica Prison Uprising started on this day in 1971. An immediate precursor to this uprising was the killing of activist and author George Jackson. He was incarcerated at San Quentin Prison in California, and he was killed on August 21st of 1971. This was during an alleged escape attempt, but there are still a lot of unanswered questions and controversies around his death. But the consensus among the men who were incarcerated at Attica was that he had been framed and murdered by the guards. This certainty combined with ongoing issues of racism and just dehumanizing conditions at the prison put everyone on edge, from the incarcerated men to the staff, everyone. Less than three weeks after Jackson was killed, Leroy Dewar was in a play fight with another man in the cell block A exercise yard. This was horseplay. They weren't actually fighting with each other. An officer yelled for him to stop, but also mistook him for another man and called him by the wrong name. So Dewar didn't stop. He didn't know he was the person that was being spoken to. It was his first day back in the exercise yard after being keep-locked or confined completely to his cell for a week. When another officer came down into the yard to break up this this horseplay, Dewar hit him in the chest and said that he wouldn't be keep-locked again. This was not a punch. It was more of a tap or a shove. A crowd started to gather around them, and the situation became incredibly tense, with a lot of incarcerated men defending Dewar and the officers becoming increasingly concerned about the situation. They finally decided to drop it and resolve it later. Resolving it later meant taking Dewar and one of the men who had come to his defense out of their cells after lockup and taking them to solitary confinement. This was something that the other incarcerated men were sure was a sign that something terrible was about to happen to them. As the men were being taken to breakfast the next morning, somebody in Company 5 took advantage of an unattended lockbox to let somebody who was supposed to be in keep lock out of his cell. The officers realized what was going on, and they started to contain everyone in Company 5 in one of the access tunnels in the prison. When they realized they were trapped, this led the men to panic, and some of them jumped two of the officers and took their keys. Almost immediately, the officers lost control of a lot of Attica. Incarcerated men started breaking down security gates and making improvised weapons. The prison staff was absolutely unprepared for something like this. The facility itself had been built with all of these security gates and other features that were supposed to prevent exactly this kind of an uprising. And with the gates broken down, they didn't really have a plan. The uprising continued for days, and the incarcerated men took hostages. A group of men in D-Yard in the prison commandeered a typewriter and drafted a list of demands but negotiations about those demands kept running into roadblocks. 
Then on September 11th, 1971, Officer William Quinn, who had been struck in the head during the initial takeover of part of the prison, died of his injuries. On September 13th, law enforcement decided to retake the prison by force. When they did, in the span of about 15 minutes, 38 people were shot to death and 80 more were wounded, one of whom later died of his injuries. A quarter of those killed were hostages, not incarcerated men. The building itself was also heavily damaged. And during the effort to restore normalcy, many of the incarcerated men were beaten, humiliated, and addressed with racist slurs. There were some reforms that followed this riot. Some of them were related to the demands that the men had typed up during the uprising. Some of them addressed some of the conditions that had primed the men to stage an uprising in the first place. But a lot of the dehumanizing conditions at the prison persisted. There is a whole lot more to this story, from the conditions at Attica before the uprising to the uprising's aftermath, and you can learn more about it in the November 14th and 16th, 2016 episodes of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Thanks to Tari Harrison for all her audio work on this podcast, and you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Tune in tomorrow for an accidental discovery that totally changed the world of forensic science. Hey, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. The day was September 9th, 1924. Strikes organized by Filipino sugar workers in Kauai, Hawaii, turned deadly. The Hanapepe Massacre, as it became known, resulted in the death of 16 Filipinos and four police officers and the injury of many other people. Sugar plantations were a big business in Hawaii in the 1800s and early 1900s. The industry and Hawaii's economy and politics were controlled by corporations known as the Big Five. Castle and Cook, Theo H. Davies, Alexander and Baldwin, C. Brewer, and Amfac. Immigrants and Hawaiian laborers remained at the bottom of the class hierarchy, though they produced most of the island's wealth. The Hawaii Sugar Planters Association, or HSPA, subjected workers to discrimination and segregation. They put Chinese, Japanese, Portuguese, Spanish, and Filipino workers in different camps and a person's race often determined what assignments and wages they received. By the 1920s, workers began to strike against the discrimination and poor conditions on plantations. Japanese, Chinese, and Korean laborers left plantations to find better work in bigger cities. The HSPA made up for the losses by encouraging more Filipino people to move to Hawaii to work on the plantations. More than 100,000 Filipinos migrated to Hawaii between 1910 and 1932. That caused a drastic shift in the ethnic makeup of the plantation workers spread throughout the Hawaiian islands. Most of the Filipinos were from the Ilocos provinces and the Visayan islands. 
The HSPA intentionally chose people who were uneducated and could not read or write, as it figured they would be more compliant than people who had received even just some schooling. But the Filipino workers had grueling jobs, the pay was poor, and discrimination was rampant on the plantations. Their workdays were 10 to 12 hours. They lived in barracks where they would have to share a small room with several men. And the low wages they did make largely went back to company stores, where they bought their living necessities. They often lived in isolation with no temples, language schools, or other community centers. To get a ticket back home to the Philippines from their employers, they had to work 720 days over three consecutive years. On top of that, Filipinos were discriminated against because of their nationality. But despite the HSPA's best efforts to only hire people who would not rebel, in 1920, Japanese and Filipino workers demanded better conditions, including an increase in pay from 77 cents to $1.25 per day. The HSPA rejected their demands, and labor leader Pablo Manlapit, along with Japanese labor leaders, formed the higher wage movement. A strike of Japanese and Filipino laborers proceeded and lasted several months. The HSPA evicted workers from their housing, a dispute divided Japanese leaders in Manlapit, and the HSPA spread propaganda. None of the strikers' demands were met, but Filipino laborers continued to petition for better pay and the right to collective bargaining. Still, sugar plantation owners refused to acknowledge their demands. In April of 1924, Manlapit called for Filipino workers to go on strike. Around 12,000 workers from plantations on Oahu, Hawaii, Maui, and Kauai went on strike. To attempt to put an end to the strikes, the HSPA recruited Ilocano laborers from the Philippines as strike breakers, pitting Ilocanos against Visayans. And the HSPA used spies to infiltrate strike meetings and rallies. On September 8th, strikers at a camp in Hanapepe, close to the Makaweli sugar plantation, took two Ilocanos hostage. Those who had joined the strikes from that plantation were from the Visayan regions, while Ilocos had continued working. The next day, police demanded the strikers release the captured Ilocanos. They did so, but violence broke out, resulting in the death of 20 people. Strikers armed themselves with guns, knives, rocks, and clubs and went up against the police. Governor Farrington sent in machine gun squads and rifle companies from the National Guard. 101 strikers were arrested, 76 went to trial, and 60 were given four-year jail sentences. Manlapit was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. Years later, a Filipino woman said that witnesses had been promised money and a ticket to the Philippines to testify against Manlapit. The strike continued for three more months. The HSPA continued to exploit workers, though laborers did make some gains in working conditions. And other successful strikes were waged by plantation workers into the mid-1900s. Sugar plantations have since declined in Hawaii, as corporations looked to other countries where they could pay workers low wages. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday.
And if you haven't gotten your fill of history after listening to today's episode, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. We'll be back with more history tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.